1: Today on Abounding Grace, we continue with our survey of Revelation. Up next, chapters 9 and 10, The Strong Angel and the Little Book. Here in Revelation chapter 10, we have a a little book or a little scroll, and John is told to eat this scroll. The significance of what all of this means will be the subject of our time today as we continue our survey of Revelation. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, greetings in Christ and welcome to Abounding Grace. Pastor Gary Wagner now takes us back to Revelation chapters 9 and 10. Once again, the strong angel. And the little book.
0: It is significant here when the book of Revelation takes up that very figure of speech from the Old Testament. Here you have this gigantic, all powerful person who has conquered everything on earth. There's nothing outside his realm. His one foot is on the land, and the other foot is on the sea. Wherever he has enemies, Beloved, his foot is on their neck. The earth is the footstool for his feet. So however disgusting and terrible and hideous the army of locusts is, the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered it, as well as everything else on this earth to serve his purposes. Verse 3 of our text. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, this is another uh, Old Testament figure of speech. The roaring of a lion. It's used to describe the voice of God in various places, like in Amos chapter 3.8. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So God's voice is described as the powerful roaring of a lion that no one can resist, either in drawing his people to himself or in procuring judgment upon his enemies. And here the Lord Jesus Christ himself is given the voice of God. He, this mighty angel, Jesus Christ himself, preached with the voice of God like a lion roars. Then he says something that, to be honest, I'm not really sure what it means in verses three and four, but I'll give it a try. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. And do not write them. Not absolutely sure what all this means. But John has been very detailed in describing this vision now. The horrors of God's judgment upon apostate Jerusalem. But now there is an aspect of this judgment that's described as seven peals of thunder. That are so incomprehensible. So frightening. So hard to believe. So terrifying that no human words can describe it. So in the midst of this detailed description, figuratively of God's wrath, John is all ready to write about these seven peals of thunder, and he's told, don't write about this. Don't tell anybody what this is. Seal it up. It's too horrifying. It is too incredible. It will scare even good people to death. If they were to know of these aspects of my judgment. Don't write anything about them. The very thought is terrifying. After all. What he did reveal was terrifying enough. But now he is saying. There are some things about my judgment upon the wicked. That no human being would ever want to know. Because they wouldn't be able to take it. That's a good thing to tell your hardened, rebellious friends, those who are not believers. You can talk to them about the fires of hell, and you can talk about Judgment Day. And then take them to this passage and tell them there are parts of God's judgment on your sin that will be so horrifying that no one can stand to hear about. So God tells John to seal up these things. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. Now, this is most likely a direct reference to what the saints were praying under the altar. Remember back in the 8th chapter where the saints were praying that God would vindicate himself? And they kept saying, How long, O Lord, will it be before you vindicate yourself and silence your enemies? And this is probably a reference back to that prayer that played such an important part in everything that happened after chapter 8. And here in chapter 10, Jesus The resurrected Christ raises up his hand and takes an oath. Meaning, you can believe what I say is true. I am not going to go back on my word. You asked me to vindicate myself. I swear I shall vindicate myself. And more than likely, the oath he made resembles that oath took in Deuteronomy 32. So, Turn with me there, please. This may be what Jesus actually had in mind in the oath that he took in our text. Deuteronomy 32, 40 and following. This is an oath that God took and he said, Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever. In other words, God says, as I lift up my hand, I'm taking an oath. I'm swearing by myself because this is one greater than I. There is no one greater than I by whose name I can swear. And here is what he says. Deuteronomy 32, verses 41 through 43. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes a hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. And I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. And my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. From the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. And will render vengeance on his adversaries. And will atone for his land and his people. So... Here you have God in the Old Testament taking an oath, saying, I am going to use my flashing sword. I'm going to take hold of justice, and I'm going to render vengeance upon all my adversaries and all of those who have assailed my people. That is most likely the same kind of oath that Jesus took here in verses 5 and 6. Of Revelation chapter 10 where he swore I will use my shining sword and I will take hold of justice and I'm going to pour out my justice in indescribable ways upon apostate Judaism and any other religion and any other people who do harm to my chosen people and here is what he swears in verse 6 by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, there shall be no more delay. Now, if you have the King James Version, it says that there should be, no, should be time no longer. That's actually an inaccurate translation because there will always be time. There will even be time in eternity. Oh, it may be measureless, but there will be time. You see, you can't have finite created things without time. When you walk from one step to another, time is involved. When you think one thought that logically proceeds to another, that logically proceeds to another, you have the element of time in your thinking. So that time is an inseparable part of creation. So it doesn't say that time will be no longer. It says in Greek that there will be no more delay. You have asked me to show vengeance on my enemies and yours. And there will be no more delay. I will put it off no longer. I swear you will see in your lifetime my vengeance poured out on the heads of your enemies. And in 70 A.D. the vengeance was poured out. Verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seven angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. And he has preached to his servants, as he has preached to his servants, the prophets. Now in that verse you have a Greek grammatical structure that I'll just give you the name of to impress you and then explain it and go on. Well, really, I can't impress you because I got this from someone else, but it is called the Aorist of Anticipation. And I love this. That is, it speaks of something as if it has already come to pass in full, as if it were already finished and accomplished. So it says here, the war's over and total victory was secured. But they use this verb in the past tense to describe the certainty of something in anticipation of something that is yet to come, but most certainly will take place. So here you see the promise of God's judgment that began in the first century, that will continue to clear the ground for his people and continue to work in removing the enemy of God off the land until the whole process is complete at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, When he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Now, what is the mystery? Well, as I have explained before, the word mystery in the New Testament, if I were to use one word as a synonym, would be gospel. The word mystery is the word for gospel in the New Testament. Anything pertaining to the gospel, sacraments, etc. For instance, in Romans 16:25 it says, "Now to him who was able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested." And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, who has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So Paul ends Romans with this wonderful description of praise, saying it is through the gospel, the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of the mystery that will lead to the conversion of the Gentiles. So this mystery John talks about is the mystery of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And in this context, he's talking about his own preaching of the gospel. That the preaching of the gospel is the preaching of the mystery that is totally unknown by man unless revealed by God. So John talks about this mystery that is being preached and it is closely identified with this little book. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying... Go and take the book which is opened in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land. Now remember, this is the glorified Christ he's speaking of. And where did he get this book? Revelation 5. Remember, God was on his throne. He had this book that had in its contents the administration of God's covenant curses upon his enemies and God's blessings upon his people. And the only person in all of the universe that was qualified to take this book and open it and administer its contents was none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I think this little book here in Revelation 10 is the same book we read about back in Revelation 5, and God has placed in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is what he says. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And my stomach was bitter. Now, where did John get this figure of speech? Well, turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 2. And let's begin with verse 8, and we'll read through chapter 3 of verse 3, and you'll see where this imagery comes from. So we'll begin in chapter 2, verse 8, and go through to chapter 3, verse 3. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back. Remember this little book that Jesus has it was written on the front and back. It was full of words and written on it were lamentations, mourning and woe. And then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. If I had more time, I'd read that whole section to you, but we don't. So there you see where this vision in chapter 10 of Revelation originates. So the mystery of God is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ... And this little book is the pouring out of that mystery in God's grace upon his friends and his judgment upon his enemies. And he says, once you eat the book, it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. But when you digest it, it will be bitter. Now, those of you who spend a good deal of time in the Bible, you know that experience for yourself. You know there are Some things in the Bible, uh, that the more you read them and digest them, it is sweet and delicious in your mouth. But the more you meditate on it and think about it, the more you realize the hard implications and the dark side of these things, that there is grace on one side, but there is judgment on the other. And the ideas of judgment bring bitterness to your stomach, just like the ideas of God's grace and mercy bring sweetness to your mouth. So here you have Jesus Christ placing on his church a twofold commission regarding his gospel. You saw it in Ezekiel 2 and 3, and you see it here. Christ commands his people to do two things with reference to this little book. Digest its contents and proclaim those contents. Digest the contents of this little book, even if it makes you sick or troubles you, even if it brings bitterness. Believe and digest the sweet parts. That is the truth concerning the church safety and victory in Christ. And believe and digest the bitter parts That is the truth concerning the severity of God's judgment upon the world and upon false churches. In eating the contents of the little book, beloved, we are to make its contents fully our own. Master God's truths and requirements and promises and commandments. Digest the meaning of his word. Make his purpose so much a part of your life that it is like when you assimilate your food or as you fully understand his word. Only those who make God's word part and parcel of their lives can know either the bitterness or the sweetness of obedience. Listen to this quote from Thomas F. Torrance. He says, surely there is a question here we must ask of ourselves. If there is no wormwood, if there is no bitterness in the stomach after eating God's Word, are we really in touch with the Word of God? If our message is not disturbing and even sometimes tormenting, may we not wonder if we have ever really eaten God's Holy Word. This chapter tells us quite clearly that we cannot partake of God's word in this world without bitterness. So I ask, why does the church of Jesus Christ today set so easily with her surroundings? Why do Christians live so comfortable and even undisturbed lives in this evil and disturbed world? Surely, it is because we are not true to the Word of God. So on one hand, God commands us to eat and digest the food, the sweet parts and the bitter parts. And on the other hand, as we saw in the book of Ezekiel, Christ commissions us to proclaim the contents, whatever it is, whatever the Bible teaches. <coughs> and the place of this proclamation and the plan of God is clear, my friends. It is the means of advancing the total victory of Christ over all the earth. So as we preach the word of God to various peoples and tongues and kings about the lordship of Christ, about his judgment of all ungodly nations, about the fact that he shall exalt his church over all the earth, it will lead to the Christianization of nations and of kings. That very thing will take place that as we preach about the advance of Christ's kingdom and the Christianization of the earth, Christ will use that proclamation from us to advance his nation to convert and win the hearts of the nations and kings of this earth. So on one hand, Jesus Christ is the establisher of his peace in the hearts of everyone who believes his gospel. And on the other hand, he is the Lord and executor of his judgment. And those two roles are inseparable. The Lord Jesus Christ today is at work establishing peace and pouring out His His wrath on His enemies. That's how He brings peace. We must have Christ's purposes as our own. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, But peacemakers in the full biblical sense of the word aren't those that just brush off the evilness of men because we are at war with anti-christian order because christ is at war with them and the weapons of our warfare are prayer obedience to christ faithful witnessing and faithful proclamation of the gospel and as we digest this gospel however sweet or bitter and proclaim its contents The Lord Jesus Christ shall advance over his enemies and bring about the conquest of the world with his gospel. Amen.